Hello and thanks for listening to Behind the Brand, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of some of Australia's most exciting small business success stories. I'm your host, Jen LA, a serial entrepreneur who loves talking all things small business. Each week, I'll sit down with an incredible founder and ask them to share it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, on my mission to find out exactly what it takes to run a successful small business. From startups to scale-ups and international success stories, you'll hear it all right here on Behind the Brand. If you love what you're hearing and want more, find me on Instagram and TikTok at behindthebrand.podcast. Of course, sharing the good vibes is always appreciated. Share this episode on your stories or leave a podcast review. A little bit of love goes a long, long way. But for now, sit back, relax and enjoy while I take you behind the brand. Hello, everybody. Happy Wednesday and welcome to this week's episode of Behind the Brand. As always, I am your host, Jen LA, and I am so happy to have you with me for another week to discuss the ins and outs and what it's really like behind the brand. So today we are talking to a big tech brand that has had a massive growth spurt in the last couple of years. I was so incredibly excited when today's guest said yes to come on the podcast, especially because they have just closed our, ready, $89 million capital raising round. Now, okay, I need to stumble over those words because it is so crazy to me that this kind of stuff happens. That's definitely not my area of expertise. And we get into all of that and what that looks like behind the brand. What's especially interesting is how much this brand has really succeeded given they operate in tech and essentially hospitality and during the COVID few years that we've had lately. So without further ado, I will introduce today's guest, Kerry Osborne, CXO of Mr. Yum. Kerry, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. So we're just chatting about how this is one of your first proper podcasts. Are you excited? Are we nervous? I am excited. I am nervous, um, but I always get nervous like right up before I do these kinds of things. And then as soon as I'm on, I'm absolutely fine. So I, I will give it my best. <laughs> and people who don't know because they don't see it because I don't press record yet, I always get nervous just before I press record and have to like shake out all my nerves. So we're here, <laughs> we're doing it. And you know what? I'm so excited and like really humbled that you guys said yes. Well, you guys will talk about who's in the brand at the moment, but you said yes to come onto the podcast. Mr. Yum is a really big deal. So before we go into it all, tell me, just give me the elevator pitch for Mr. Yum. What's it all about? Yeah, so Mr. Yum is essentially a mobile menu uh, ordering and payments platform used by the best hospitality and events brands. So essentially customers can browse the menu on their phone, they can order and pay, um, and it's it, for our customers at other venues, like we're selling them this digital yep. ordering platform that allows them to increase their average order value um, and attract more bums on seats, essentially, which is what they all want to do uh, with our suite of yeah. marketing tools. So I'm sure people have seen the QR codes popping up on yes. um, tables around Australia in venues. Yep. And um, yeah, it's with, with everything that's happened with COVID, it, it uh, really helped the brand to explode. Amazing. And we're going to go into that a bit later. But tell me a bit about your role at Mr. Yum. What do you do? So I am co-founder and chief experience officer, so CXO. I've got a nice sexy title that my co-founders are quite envious of. But essentially I oversee... Yeah, I oversee the venue experience primarily. So post-sale, once the... The sales team uh, deal with the the venue and they agree to come on board Mr. Yam. They sign the contract and everything. Then they get handed over to my team who will onboard them, um, account manage them and support them ongoing, which is really important to us. Yeah, that's a cool title. I love there's, you know, there's always like CEO and like CFO that people know, but now there's so much more going on, which I love. I love that about startups and scale-ups. Let's talk about though you. 
So Mr. Yum started in 2018, if I'm correct. Yeah. Tell me about Kerry in 2017. Like what was she like? What was she doing? What were her goals? All of that. So this is actually Kim and Adrian and my third business together. And uh, we were running a startup consultancy before Mr. Yam, where we were essentially helping early stage founders, people who had an idea for a business to avoid making a lot of the mistakes that we had made and just helping them Mm -hmm. kind of know where to get started. And from doing that, um, we were like, well, we're still entrepreneurs. Like we still have our own ideas and we wanted to break away some time to actually work on our own ideas and put them through the process that we were putting our clients ideas through and um, from that is where the I guess the idea of Mr. Yam was born and we decided that we wanted to to work on it from there. Um, This is my third startup venture. Um, The others were not as successful but you know very important parts of the journey and could never have done what I'm doing today if I hadn't have attempted those in the past. And I'm so glad you said that because I also, a lot of, I guess some people do know, some people don't, I had a food brand and that I sold in 2018, but like I was like genuinely, and I'm saying this with a light tone in my voice, it's quite actually quite stressful. We'll do an episode on it one day. But like I was on the verge of personal <laughs> bankruptcy. Thing was, Stuff was really bad. My mental health was really bad. The business was really like it was just escalating more than I could handle. And but. I took me so long to kind of get over that, like, oh, my God, this business didn't work out, I'm such a loser, everyone's laughing at me, all of that, to then realise that there's so much power in what you've learned and putting it towards something new. Hello, here I am with this podcast. <laughs> did you have any – how did you feel when your other startups kind of like didn't work out or how, how did they end for you? Yeah, there was definitely an element of that and it was – it was difficult. I was proud of though what we had achieved, and I think you know going into what I'm doing now. Like when I first met Kim, she would never have wanted to bring me on board as a co-founder in our previous business if I hadn't have had that startup experience and that experience, you know, trying to get something started, raise capital in that early stage and have been through the highs and lows and ridden the roller coaster that is startups. Mm -hmm. So I did always know when I left my corporate job at L'Oreal that if things didn't work out, I would be able to just come back to it. Like I think I was fortunate in the sense that I didn't have a mortgage or like children or anything like that. And so I was able to just completely jump straight into doing a startup, quitting my job, um, not getting paid for a while. Um, But then I always knew that if it didn't work out, and it didn't, um, that I could just go back and get another corporate job, which I did. And and then when the second one didn't work out, I ended up going back to that corporate job. Um, And then, you know, on the third time round, then, yeah, this time it's been going a lot better. (laughs) What was your corporate job? So initially I was working into various marketing roles at L'Oreal, started my career there as an intern, graduate, um, moved up to become a brand manager. And then after my first startup going back into corporate, I worked as the marketing manager of Matchbox and that's a national Mm -hmm. chain of kitchenware stores. Um, And so that was where I had met Kim actually my co-founder and the CEO of Mr. Yum, who was starting a business called Neighbor Flavor, which was still in the food space. It was a an app that connects home cooks with people who want to buy home cooked meals. Look, aside from the fact that it's illegal, um, it wasn't even <laughs> the biggest challenge with that idea. <laughs> Yeah, um, the, the the model just didn't work. The the, the numbers didn't stack up, um, and so that again was like a valuable learning experience in itself. We never actually ended up launching that business, but we had raised half a million dollars. Never actually took the money, so didn't have to actually, um, you know, lose anyone's money or anything. But certainly, like some really good lessons that all contributed to what we're doing now. So it was in, in hindsight, you know, it, it doesn't feel like any of those were failures. They were all just parts of the journey and valuable learnings. That's really interesting the way you just said, you know, the model didn't work, the numbers didn't stack up, really kind of factually. I think as entrepreneurs we can be really emotional about our businesses. I remember at one point with my last one, my husband, he's also an entrepreneur, and he was we were looking at my books and he's like, babe, 
this there's ju- it's just not here like you're not seeing this and I'm like you just have to have faith and it's going to work out and it's I just need my big break you know Oprah will like it on something and then you know my life will change and and I know there's there's there is a level of that that but there's also really a level of being rational about it so I like the way you, you know the way you kind of you raise the capital I would be the kind of person this says all about me as a people pleaser I'd be like I've raised half a million dollars I have to see this through I have to spend it so good on you for not being like that (laughs) Uh, yeah and everyone kept saying to us that's a brilliant idea that's a brilliant idea that's a good that's a great idea and so you tend to think that that's like enough validation but it's Mm. not enough validation Um, you need to really understand like whether there's a commercial model there and whether it it it, it, it's going to be if if, yeah whether or not the economics are going to stack up yeah, and I guess that's kind of the difference between a business and a hobby, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, people say that. I obviously had a very, very expensive hobby that took up all of my time. Um, okay, so let's talk about you've had a few different experiences there um, and also L'Oreal, notoriously long hours and tough place to work. So you obviously are cut out for the hard yards of being an entrepreneur having been there. Let's talk about the idea of Mr. Yum. Mm-hmm. How did it come up? Was there like an aha Oprah's like aha moment? I've met, just mentioned Oprah twice in two minutes. Um, or was it kind of a, was it more research looking for something? Tell me about that. Yeah. So actually with our startup consultancy, we used to recommend that people either look to solve a problem with an idea or they look for an insight. And Mr. Young was certainly an insight that every time we would go out to eat a meal and this is it was actually Kim's idea my co-founder although I was like oh my gosh that's so true we would be wanting to see photos of the food before we would choose what to order and especially with Melbourne's brunch culture we would not want to risk ordering the wrong thing and then have something else come out and be like oh my god that looks so much better and have food envy and so Mm -hmm. we thought wouldn't it be great if there was a way to see photos of the food because what the current behavior was at the time was going onto Instagram, going onto yes. Zomato or like just trying to find photos. And actually sometimes it, when I go somewhere that doesn't have Mr. Yum, I'm so I'm so used to seeing photos of the food that I will still go on Instagram and try and visually see what I should order that way. But that's it's not a good experience because they have old things on there and you're trying to like match up the mm-hmm. menu. But mm-hmm. having photos on the printed menu was considered this like really tacky kind of laminated mm. menu situation food that you court, get in like yeah. a food court or yeah, this kind of yeah. like deep Asian restaurant. And the photos are really helpful, but they just don't say premium venue, right? So we were trying to make it easy for people to decide what to order, but done in a classy way. Do you know how many times I've been for brunch and everyone's like whipped out their phone? I'm thinking about a specific time a while ago, whipped out their phone and been like, do you think that's this? Do you think yeah. that's this? Like showing their phone, like I want to order this. I guess if you even think back, back before phone, like, you know, you're using Instagram, people like waiters walking past and you're kind of like looking at what other people are eating and being like, that looks good. That looks good. Exactly. That was the, that was the insight. And, and it was only a digital menu at the start with no order and pay functionality. But then yeah. venue owners started saying to us, well, you know, if people are going to look at the menu, the menu through this, how can we actually get them to order and pay through it? And some forward-thinking venues at the time, this is pre-COVID, were already mm-hmm. thinking that. We started learning about the problems that the industry were facing and realising how margins in hospitality are super thin and it's super competitive and rents are really high. We have the highest wage costs in the world. And so mm-hmm. we started realising that, oh, my God, there's this huge problem in the industry that we can solve with this product um, and didn't know that around the corner was an even bigger problem that we were going to be able to help them um, solve with okay. when you know when COVID came about. You couldn't have led me into my next question any better if we tried. Okay, so I saw a meme and it said something like, no one's had a bigger glow up this pandemic than the QR code. <laughs> what was the market like for QR codes in 2018? Yeah, so I actually saw that too and had multiple people send that meme to me. <laughs> and we... 
yeah, it was really difficult at the start. Um, we used to have to include on the menus and the table signage instructions on how to like hover your phone camera over the QR mm. code to mm-hmm. open the link. And that in itself, that. yeah, yeah, that in itself was like a magical moment for people because they were like, oh, I didn't know my camera could do that. Um, yeah. But at the time, Apple had just built the QRs the QR code scanner into the camera and Android followed about six months later. And so it was actually um, Kim who foresaw that QR codes were actually going to become, you know, much more mainstream and could never have foreseen how how much mainstream, but it really um, helped us when obviously QR codes became common practice during, during COVID. That's good timing. Let's talk about, though, launching Mr. Yum into the market. So I'm probably more familiar, and I guess a lot of people would be too, with launching a physical product Mm -hmm. and how you market that. You know, you give it to influencers, you do sampling, that kind of, you've got something tangible, right? How do you go about, and I guess this is your zone of genius, how do you go about marketing a digital product? Because that, to me, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. Yeah, and ours is pretty unique. So our customers are primarily venues. So we're a B to B to C business mm-hmm. uh, because there is the consumer at the end. Um, but in order to get those first businesses on board, well, in the early days, we were literally just like walking into cafes and restaurants and trying to remove all the barriers. So we were offering them a free visual menu. We were basically begging them to use it. We would get our designers, or I use the, the term designers loosely because it was basically just me on InDesign, but like <laughs> literally like get their design file and we would of their menu and we would add the QR code on there and we would offer to pay to have their menus reprinted so it would have the QR code on there. I'm saying, you know, view our visual menu. And then we would say that, you know, oh, we'll get our, de- our, our developers to add the, you know, add your menu on your website and then that was really just us in, in the background getting mm-hmm. their Wix logins or whatever and, and going on and adding their menu link to their to their website. So for us, it was about getting the menu in as many places as possible, getting it on the physical on their physical paper menu, getting it on their website, getting it on their Google business listing. And then, of course, the product itself generates views and people uh, generates exposure because people see it, they use it, and then they, they go, oh, I, I, I want to get this for my venue. So it really has mm. network effects built in to the product that way. Um, and then we, we just really needed to get that one key customer at the start, which for us was Australian Venue Co. They own 170 pubs and um, really nice bars in Australia. And once we had them on board, um, then you know, using that name and as well like the, the, the names of some of the other early customers that we had, it helped to, I guess, um, with social proof and like validating that mm-hmm. – um, that we were a good company to work with and it made it easier to to get other venues on board. Yeah, I, God, everyone is going to be so bored because they know exactly what I'm about to say. It's exactly like that scene in Never Been Kissed where she's trying to be cool at the high school and she can't be cool until her brother comes in and she's like, how are you cool? And he's like, it just takes one cool person to say you're cool to make you cool. <laughs> like that's literally this. I see this so much in business and it's so true. What you just said with Australian Venue Co, right? It's that proof. It's like, oh, well. If they trust them, and honestly, like for people listening, I'll be super honest, I feel like that with the podcast too. Mm. Often when I approach people, I'll be like, these other people are coming <laughs> on it, so you, it's going to be okay, I promise you. Um, who was your first customer? Do you remember? Our first customer was a really little cafe that was the closest one to our office called Lemon, Middle and Orange and it was run by this beautiful French man and we would go in there and, and, and try to convince him to to let us put this QR code on the menu and that's how we started at the start. We, we said, okay, we had this idea. Um, Adrian, my co-founder, didn't think it was a very good idea. You know, it, Kim, it was Kim's idea initially. I was like, why don't we just, I, mean, I can't stop thinking about this idea. Why don't we just try it? Let's try and validate it. And so we said, we'll put it in, we'll, we'll create like a really basic version of it. We'll put it in three cafes that are literally like the closest to us. And mm-hmm. 
if we'll, we'll sit there and we'll watch people use it and we'll set ourselves a fail metric. So we said if less than 5% of people use it, then it's not probably going to work. But we saw close to 20% of people who walked in see the QR code on the menu and scan it. And so we thought, okay, well, that's really interesting. Like People are curious about it and using it. And that was an important step in the validation process to then uh, start showing that data to other venues and getting more and more people on board. Yeah. I love that, putting in place a fail metric. That's I've never thought to do that. So <laughs> that's really interesting. I'm just going to take notes. Those early customers, you said yourself like your team as in you on InDesign, mm. editing the menus and paying to reprint them and doing their website edits. Are they paying you for this service at that stage or are you literally paying to acquire these customers with all these bits and pieces? Yeah, no one was paying anything at the start. We were just doing whatever we could to get people using it. We just wanted to prove that customers would use it and get 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 the usage there at the time we didn't even know exactly how we were going to monetize this but we knew that if we got a lot of people using it then we would Mm -hmm. be able to prove that you know there is demand for this type of this type of product and actually when we did start charging for it before covid and by then you know we had a bit more of a product and a bit more of a service we actually did notice an increase in our conversion um so people just typically like don't really value something that's free as much as they do if they have to pay for something so we did start charging for it a little bit but then when covid happened we decided to just offer that product for free and then Mm. we use it as a lead-in product to then if they use the free menu and without the order and pay, that then it's very easy for them to kind of turn on the, the order and pay functionality and then we start making money through taking a clip of every sale that's transacted through the platform. Yeah. Okay, that is really, really clever. Now, you've mentioned Kim a little bit. Who else is founding this company with you at this stage? Yeah, so I have three co-founders. There's four of us. Kim is our CEO and leads product. And Adrienne is her partner, as in business partner and romantic partner. He leads sales and marketing. And their relationship actually works like super well within the business. Um, and then Andre, who's our fourth co-founder, who came in a little bit after, but he's our CTO and he really did build um, the product and has you know, the weight of the product really rests on his shoulders and he always treated the business like it was his own and um, has built out an incredible engineering team. And so we made him a co-founder um, about a year into the journey and it really was the right decision for us. Um, and then I, yeah, and then I lead the, the customer experience. So we work really well together. We're very different. It's really helpful having four of us especially when we're trying to be in the US and the UK and we actually sat down together last week over some drinks and had a bit of a session where we came prepared with like three things that we were most proud of achieving in 2021 and three things that we didn't achieve that we wish we did and also like how we plan to be more productive and efficient this year and then we gave each other feedback on what we think each other person had done really well in our eyes and feedback on um, yeah, how they can improve and how we can work together better. And it was a really super useful session. I'd highly recommend other business owners do that with their business partners because when you're a business owner, you don't really have a manager or you don't really have like a performance review yeah. or mm-hmm. you know someone to give you that feedback. So for us, we found it super useful and I couldn't be happier with my co-founders we just all uh, work so well together and respect each other's differences and different strengths it works really well this will say everything about who I am as a human being when I say sitting down reflecting giving feedback criticism and taking it on board is like my favorite like that would (laughs) be such a fun day for me and I would be looking forward to that from the day we put it in the calendar um (laughs) Clearly, I'm quite sad, but that's that's really great. I need someone to I need someone to do that with me. Otherwise, just me in the mirror. Yeah, um, it was it was good. It's not something that that we do very often, but now we yeah. were all like, "Oh my god, that was so amazing! That was so helpful and really yeah. real." And we have now like scheduled them in the calendar to do them um, at least at least twice a year. That's a really good tip for people. 
Okay. We touched on it before. The big C word, COVID. Let's talk about what that did for your business. As, I guess, when did COVID kind of start? That was like, what, March 2019 for us here. Where was Mr. Yum at then? And then how has it, spoiler alert, exploded since then? (laughs) Yeah, so we were one of those very fortunate businesses that has benefited from COVID in a lot of ways. But initially when it first came about and everything first went into lockdown, we only had about 50 venues on board with the order and pay product. So it was already doing well. Uh, we were seeing great results. We were starting to sign some some, some big customers, some you know, forward-thinking ones. But when that first happened, like our revenue went to $0 pretty much overnight. We were Well, because people our- aren't, in, aren't in restaurants. Yeah, exactly. Like all of our revenue was coming from that di- those dining orders and when the venues closed, we didn't have a way of making any revenue and so our venues were coming to us saying, oh, like we need to try and do pickup and delivery. Like can you help us? And they were going to – their only other alternative was to spend you know, 30% on the, the Uber Eats and the deliveries of the world mm-hmm. and so we – our design team actually built pickup and delivery functionality within about – nine days and oh wow <laughs> they just worked around the clock and our team just all jumped in and onboarded hundreds of venues and a lot of them a lot of them like we weren't even making money on to be honest um just because of like the cost involved in onboarding them etc but the the brand value that we created in just being there for the industry and helping them through what was a really tough time made such a big difference and we actually did make a lot of money on um overall like in terms of like within about six to eight weeks we were already doing more revenue than we had before covid um and we we knew that not all of this would would be sustainable because we knew that after covid a lot of them would turn off pickup and delivery but then when Mm. they were reopening they needed a um, a, a dine-in mobile ordering solution and they were much more open to it than they had been before. So yeah. we before, like, it was really hard to get customers to, like, walk into a pub and, like, sit down, like, don't go to the bar because people are, like, yeah. a moth to a flame and there's, like, hundreds of years of consumer behaviour there. But yeah. COVID was really, like, the catalyst to help change that behaviour and then people didn't question, oh, I have to sit down, I have to order from my phone. Um, they were just like, oh, yep, it's COVID, I have to kind of do that. But then after COVID, they were so used to it that they didn't they didn't stop using it after COVID in most cases. They they were like, that's a far better experience, being able to just order on your phone, not having to go online up at the bar, not having to flag someone down to take your order. And so in that respect, it, it really helped to change consumer behaviour, get people used to QR codes, get people more mm-hmm. used to um, using their phone at the table. I love it and I love it especially when I can order something what I want and pay for me and then my best mate she's ordering you know what she wants through her one as well like there's it there's just these are just things that wouldn't be I guess before COVID that's just not how it worked right? Yeah. Okay (laughs) so let's talk about wins and losses from a marketing perspective and obviously you're the one to ask on this. Tell me about something that's really worked for you in terms of marketing. And I know we kind of talked about like that network of, I guess, restaurateurs and the word of mouth in the early days, but what's kind of something you found has really worked? And then tell me about something that has just bombed. (laughs) Yeah, so actually LinkedIn does really well for us as a branding tool. Um, Like not so much for like ads or anything like that, but we post everything that we do on LinkedIn and our marketing team are really good at this. And what we often hear is people say like, oh my God, you guys are like everywhere I look. But I think like what they're largely seeing is just that every single thing we do is just like all over our LinkedIn. And then they think like, oh my God, like those guys are doing heaps of cool stuff. Like they're at all these events, they're winning all these awards, they're working with these amazing brands, they're raising all this money. They're the ones that we want to work with. And the organic reach on LinkedIn is just absolutely insane. Like I took a photo of Kim at Beyond the City at like an event that we did over New Year's Eve and that photo has had like over 150,000 views already. And so Mm -hmm. I saw it. 
Yeah, yeah, see, so <laughs> I think LinkedIn for us is a super powerful tool and in terms of something that didn't really work, we did try um, a lot of like digital ads in like o- o- over time and I think, well, you know, we still we, we, we will still run brand term ads and retargeting ads and, and, and not to say that we will never do them in the future, but we just didn't find that the lead quality was really there when you looked at the opportunity cost and the, yeah, like the, the cost of running those ads versus having, for example, like a sales development rep doing mm-hmm. outbound calls or, or going into venues and, and, and trying to sell them that way. So yeah. um, it just it just didn't feel like money well spent for us but not yeah like not ruling out doing it again in the future Mm -hmm. I love that so I'll be going onto your LinkedIn after this and then other people (laughs) are going to go into your LinkedIn and we're going to see how you guys do it so we can all do it the same um okay let's talk about you just touch on beyond the city which I only know because my little sister was going to go to it um it's music festival in Melbourne that was over New Year's right yeah tell me at what you guys did there like, like was that like a what kind of brand activation and even that word let's like scale it right back what did you do did you just set up a stand or what was it yeah so we had the misty um good times bar which was like a little area that we had with a with you know chill out zone with bean bags and qr codes everywhere and people could order and pay for drinks through their phone they'd get a text message when it was ready and they'd just go up to the bar and pick it up so that was in the general admission section it was all branded really nicely with Mr Yum and then in the VIP section it was similar again you could um, order drinks through Mr Yum there was branding all over the seats and a beautiful like archway at the start at the entrance and it was just a really cool way of instantly having you know tens of thousands of people being able to see your brand, um, like associating yourself with a cool kid, like you said, mm-hmm, with the example mm-hmm. before in the Vinkers. And um, I think you know events will be a big part of our strategy moving forward because it is it, it lends itself really nicely to the technology, like our product, but it's also a really cool brand association. Yeah, and is that that's like a sponsorship thing you do with the event organisers, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's an untitled event. Like the, the company that, that runs that is in, untitled and they are investors in this DM from pretty early on as well. Oh, awesome. Okay. Again, you're leading me straight into my questions. I couldn't <laughs> have done this any better if I wrote it. Um, okay, so and I did say to you before, in, let's talk about you just said about investment, so investing. I am very, very new to this world in terms of raising capital. I've never done it myself. Um, The words stress me out a bit. I don't know that much about them. But according to my research, you've just finished a Series A funding round, right? What does that mean? Tell me what happened. Tell everyone about it in the same way that you are explaining it to your grandma because literally that's where my knowledge is at of this kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, so it can be a really confusing world um, of capital raising and none of us actually knew anything about raising capital before we started on this journey, um, before actually just doing it ourselves on on, on other businesses. And I'm I'm definitely no expert. Um, It's my co-founder, Kim and Adrian, who managed the capital raising process. They absolutely knocked it out of the park and we were were certainly involved and, and had some meetings as well. But we were lucky that we already had investors on from previous rounds. So generally you would start with sometimes a pre-seed round of investment, maybe two hundred to $500,000. Like it really depends on the type of company. There's, there's no real like rules mm-hmm. around this. Um, mm-hmm. And then a seed investment later on, which might be more like one to $2 million. And then um, a series A for example, I mean, the, the, over time, the, the the values of these series mm-hmm. A's and B's and C's, and you know, it just kind of goes on from there, uh, have changed a lot, and they're different in different markets and different industries. Like the US tends to be a lot bigger, um, but we yeah. already had investors on board from our previous round. Uh, we've, we're mm-hmm. working with Airtree, who are one of the best VC firms in Australia, as well as 1013, who's another really great up-and-coming firm. And they were incredible 
at introducing us to great funds around the world. So when you're in latest when you're late in later stage of capital raising, like in Series A and B and C, you've generally got like great networks around you who can really help with the introductions. Of course then mm-hmm. you know you have to be able to tell the story and sell the vision. But um, for us like the later stages are are easier. I think in the earlier stages, you what we would typically tell early stage founders in our consulting days was that Early stage funding typically comes from within two degrees of separation from the founders. So that's like people that mm-hmm. you know or people who know the people that you know. And so, Is that what they call family and friends round? Yeah, exactly, a family okay. and friends round. And so you would generally give people the opportunity to invest in what you're doing. And some people feel really weird about, oh, I don't want to take money from family and friends. But mm-hmm. honestly, if you make it big, um, then you get a lot of questions like I do now around like, oh, why didn't you let me invest early on? <laughs> hey? like, um, so, you know, you have to see that you're really giving people an opportunity rather than asking them for something. Um, but, mm-hmm. yeah, obviously you have to as well like have a, a good <laughs> a good plan. Mm-hmm. Did you know, I guess, given your work with the consulting that you had done earlier and even with the business beforehand when you had um, Neighbour Flavour looking at, you know, that half a million dollars you'd raised, Mm -hmm. did you know early on that you need investment straight away to get this business happening? Was that always part of the plan? For a tech product, yeah, you generally do. And, I mean, there are examples of companies in the past that have bootstrapped, but they are becoming probably rarer now because to remain Mm -hmm. competitive, you really do have to have a good amount of capital because, like, already now, even for us with the capital that we do have, we see competitors who have a lot of capital who, like, we would never have been able to keep up with if we hadn't have just raised this really big $90 million Series A. So yeah. if, you don't, if you don't keep up with raising capital, you won't keep up with it. Yeah. And that's, so that was your results. It was just under $90 million. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so it turned okay. out to be the third largest Series A in Australian history and the largest ever female-led <sighs> company. Okay, that is amazing. And also that number to me is so huge that <laughs> it stresses me out. I went walking with my friend yesterday and we're talking about what we would have done if we had have won the $60 million Powerball <laughs> or whatever was the other weekend. But $90 million to raise that is absolutely incredible. I mean, congratulations. How incredible. Oh, How did it feel when you guys did that? Like when it was all closed and signed, sealed, delivered, how did you feel as a company? Yeah, it was really surreal and it was um, a very proud moment. Um, it really yeah. isn't just us founders. It's the work of the, the team. We've got like 130 people in the team now and they all contributed to that result. And, and, it, and it was it was hard to raise that money when we had been in lockdowns for most of the year and our, yeah. our, our, our numbers didn't look as good as where we would have liked them to look. I mean, we had modelled out what they would look like if we weren't in lockdown, you know, but you're kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, look how good we, we would be. We, we promise <laughs> it would be that good. Um, yeah, that's all we really had to go by. But, you know, the investors yeah. are not just buying into what the business is today. They're investing in the vision of what it will become and betting that you do have the best product in the world and you do have the best team to be able to execute on your product vision. That is so cool. Honestly, congratulations. You said yourself there's lots of firsts in that. So it's just such a testament to all of the work you guys have done. Now, let's talk about ups and downs because, I mean, I'm sure that was an up. I mean, it would be kind of weird if it wasn't. But <laughs> looking at the ups and downs of the last few years, and, and we can look at this from your perspective, not just, mm-hmm. you know, of the business itself, like from yeah. your experience in the business. We're going to start with the low. Tell me about the lowest low. And then we're mm-hmm. going to bring everyone back up with the highest one. <laughs> yeah, this is um, like any like anyone in life. You know, you, you have your ups and downs, and roll, startups are a total roller coaster. And I think, yeah. like it was for everyone, twenty twenty was a really hard year for me personally, and just mm-hmm. being in and out of lockdowns, working crazy hours limited social interaction, running Mm -hmm. a growing business and suffering from some pretty hectic imposter syndrome. I mean, like you say, like $90 million, like that's, that's like astounding to you. It's astounding to us too. (laughs) It really is. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
we yeah, we were just we were just in awe of how fast everything was growing and just really holding on for dear life, trying to keep up. And at one point, yeah. I realized how low I felt. And actually, in part of my reflection, as you like to do at the end of the year, I'm reading back on some journal entries that I wrote in 2020. I was in a pretty low space, and I think I was just really yeah. emotional. I had a chronic back pain issue. I was battling. Mm. I was noticing a lot of unhealthy habits. I tend to kind of numb myself with social media to switch off mm-hmm. at night, but then it would just fill my brain with dopamine and keep me mm-hmm. up, and then I'd be tired, and it was just this bad spiral. And yeah. um, until I kind of went like, you know what, this is this is shit. I need help. Like mm. I'm I'm not able to figure this out myself. And so I just, I got a personal trainer. I started seeing a naturopath for my hormones, which I think was like fucking with my emotions. Mm-hmm. Came off the pill. I went to my osteo yep. religiously. I got an executive coach who was really awesome. Oh. And yeah. And that was just really, I think, like the reset that I needed. And yep. um, I started to get into much better habits. And I've been really mm-hmm. good since. So I think. And, and and I deleted TikTok and I have never downloaded it again because it's just way too addictive and I can't be trusted. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Funny you should say that because I only got it a few weeks ago. I was like, okay, I'm in my 30s, whatever. I'm not that old. I need to throw my phone in the bin. My screen time, I'm not lying to you. I got my notification yesterday and it's like your screen time is four hours and 52 minutes a day. <laughs> I'm on holidays. I'm. It's normal for a PR to have high screen time during, you know, the work yeah. week because I'm pretty much glued to my phone. Not on my holidays. I was like, this is disgusting. It's just way too addictive. I mean, the, the, the algorithms that they use to make people keep using the product are way smarter than my brain. And so I, I just, I just had to go. You know, it's all or nothing with this thing, and I just, I just can't be trusted. So I just don't use it, and I just, I just, I just deleted it, and um, and it really has helped a lot. Yeah. Okay. I need. And see, I'm, I get torn between. I want to do it for the business, and I don't want to do it for my own mental health. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be on it for my mental health, but I want to be on it for the business. That's literally my conflict right now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I am, I do think about that sometimes. Like, I want to like stay up with the, the trends and everything, and I still do. Um, you know, like get people, like people send me TikToks every now and then. I, I feel like I know the platform really well. I just, I just don't let mm-hmm. it run my life. And then the biggest high I would say would have been at the end of last year. We just had the most incredible week when we announced our capital raise um all the founders had just come home from overseas we had the whole team in from around the country we did a two-day company-wide hackathon that we called the yamathon uh which just really just blew me away at how creative all the ideas were and how much i learned from the experience and uh we had then at the end of the week the most amazing Christmas party where it was so much fun and we presented awards and the energy was just super electric and it was just people saying, like, this is the best company in the world and just it just really was a proud moment, very, very surreal and just thinking like, oh, my God, we actually, we actually built this and all these amazing people were really in love with what we've done and what we continue to do. So, yeah, that was that was the biggest high for me, and it's definitely a roller coaster. Um, as and I think every entrepreneur would say the same. So many people answer that question with very similar to what you've just said around how awesome it is to be able to like have staff and give them a great workplace and create mm-hmm. a culture. But I really need to know because obviously, if people probably can tell already. I am not the kind of person who's ever been to a hackathon. I don't know what happens there. (laughs) What does that mean, please? Well, I actually haven't ever done a hackathon either, but essentially you get put into a cross-functional team. So we had about eight teams and about 15 people each. And Everyone, each team had to come up with an idea and our ideas were specific to something that would benefit the company. And then we had to work on those ideas, create like a hacky kind of minimal viable product version of that idea and then create a video that explained the the problem, the solution, the idea, et cetera. And it was just incredible to see how 
much everyone came together like the 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 developers would see in the team would see what the the marketing people were doing and be like oh my god that's amazing i can't believe you did that and then you know conversely they would be looking at what the developers had been built and be like that's just magical you know wow and i think it really helped us understand that there's a lot of problems in our business that we can solve with product leveraging our developers i mean we are a tech product so Mm. um, but but you know we focus so much on the venue experience and the customer experience and i think there's a lot more that we can do um internally with internal tools and um optimizing things operationally that way do you know what that sounds like i'm going to take everyone in a time machine back to the 1990s australian primary schools do you know (laughs) tournament of the minds did you? Oh, do yeah. That? Does it, yeah. Does anyone know what this is? I did Tournament of the Minds in grade five, and it was like that. It was like a team put together, and you had to create a product. Oh, my God. I'm, no wonder I ended up where I am. You had to create like a product or a business and present like a, like a SWOT analysis and like all this stuff. That's yeah. what it sounds like, but just yeah, like for exactly. grown ups. Tournament yeah. of the Minds for grown ups. <laughs> Exactly. And, and and the videos were super funny and it really showed like people's personalities and I just think gave everybody an opportunity as well to work together and work with people that they wouldn't normally work with because we have grown so quickly and we've got people from different teams in different states. It was it was a really good team bonding experience and like we were pretty competitive, like all the founders as well were like, My team's gonna win, no, my team's gonna win. <laughs> um, just for the record, my team did win. <laughs> but yeah, it did. But really we were like, you know what, we all win, like all because we're we're getting these amazing ideas out of this and I think nearly all of them we will actually implement or have already started building for real. That is so good. That sounds like so much fun. Um, okay, so a lot of people listening are early stage founders um, and obviously it's been a pretty shitty couple of years. Can you share some advice to those people who might, you know, be looking to people like you guys and, and you know, the success you've had recently and how you've gotten through everything? Yeah, um, I've got a lot of advice. I think – one piece of advice I give to people who haven't started yet um, is to just start by validating the the, the idea. Um, and, and this could be the idea for the business or it could be just like an idea for a project within the company. I think, you know, like one thing Adrian says to me, my co-founder, is like if we hadn't have just gone ahead and validated the idea when we did, then, you know, Mr. Young probably wouldn't have existed today if we weren't like, you know, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. Um, and so I think you, know, you can do this as well with, um, yeah, uh, project ideas, for example, or campaign ideas. That's one thing that we used to do is like run like ads on Facebook and trial different, um, different headlines and kind of like see what was the cheapest cost per lead, for example, before actually like jumping into something. Um, so yeah, just, I think just starting and validating something um, is it, we'll, we'll get ideas off the ground. And what was that? We called it before a loss met loss metric. Loss, yes, a fail I'm metric. the words fail metric. Thank you. Yes, that's such a good idea to have something like that in place as well. Yeah, and I think it really helps to build a culture of experimentation within the business. Mm. Yeah, if you're trying before doing them, yeah, because it's like measured failure. Almost like expected, like it's like okay, we expected this, we're cool. Yeah, and you just want to make sure that you are measuring what you're doing. Like if you're if you're going to trial something, that you've got a bit of a, a template that you're using for you know how we're going to measure this. If if we're spending money on something, it's like and it doesn't work, well, then it's still money well spent as long as we've learnt something from that experience. Mm-hmm. But if we're not tracking it or, or or capturing those learnings, then it's just a waste of money. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. There's, these are all points I should have taken on board about five years ago. Okay, so looking back at everything, let's go back pre, you know, 2017, your, all your startup experience. If you could look back with the benefit of hindsight at your journey as an entrepreneur, yours rather than the business as a whole, would you do it again? Yeah, I would. You know, it hasn't been easy, but I'm extremely grateful to be where I am and we still have a long way to go. So I don't, you know, I, I don't think I have another startup of this nature in me after this one, but okay. there's really So it's got to work out, right? Yeah, yeah, this is it. <laughs> 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 it's go hard or go home. Um, yep. Yeah, look, 
there's nothing I'd really change in the past because everything that happened has gotten me to where I am today and I've got to be you know, pretty happy with that. But I yep. think um, it, it really is that naivety in the early days when you don't actually know what's ahead of you that makes yep. you makes you really go for it. I think if everyone knew exactly how hard it was going to be, um, then, then they might not do it. But I think it just as well says that you really need to solve a problem, like choose an idea that you are passionate about solving. And for us, we were never like super passionate about putting photos on the menu. Um, but then when we realised that we're actually solving this much bigger problem for the industry and how much impact it could have and to have businesses saying to us, like, you know, we wouldn't be able to stay alive without Mr Yum, then, you know, that's what really helps you get up in the morning when things are mm-hmm. really hard when you do have that passion for the problem that you're solving. Oh, I love that. That's really nice. That's true. It's Yeah, it might not be the exact like that tan- one tangible thing is what you're passionate about, but it's the result and it's the effect, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, if people want to keep up with you, where can they find you on the socials? So personally, I'm not great at this yet, but I yes. will say LinkedIn. Um, and yep. it is um, uh, a channel that I'm trying to grow personally or I will try to this year even more so. But, um, yeah, as, as a brand, we do a lot better on there than I do personally, but I would, yeah, love to, to hear from people on LinkedIn. So feel free to, to reach out. And we are all going to be following Mr. Yum on LinkedIn now and copying your content marketing situation over there because obviously <laughs> it's doing so well. Now, I have this is this was such a great chat, honestly. Thank you so much. There are so many takeaways that I have gotten, let alone I'm sure everyone else listening as well is would be loving everything you're saying. So thank you so much. It means a lot to me as a you know, I'm a smaller startup podcast for you know someone like you, Representative Mr. Yum, such an amazing brand to come on and share your story. So thank you so much. I do appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. And congratulations on everything you guys have achieved. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Jen. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Behind the Brand. Now, guys, if you love today's episode, I would love if you would leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts. And for your time, I will send you a copy of a press release template that you can use in your small business straight away. So all you need to do is pop onto the Apple Podcasts app, leave a written review, take a screenshot, head over to Instagram and DM it to me over at at behindthebrand.podcast and I will email you your press release template. Sound like a good deal? Talk soon. Thank you.